If I say the name Art Linkletter, <laughs> oh, okay. how many of you would be familiar with that name? You're familiar with Art Linkletter because, yes, he's a fine Canadian, I know that, let's get that out of the way. Uh, but because he had a radio show, which kind of morphed into a TV show, but was never as successful as the radio show, for years and years and years. You remember the name of it? Yep, that's right. Kids say the darndest things. You know why he called it that? Because kids say the darndest things. We are really with you this morning, aren't we? Uh, he, I, I just a couple of examples from some of the stuff that he would get when he's interviewing kids. If you've never heard that show, this is going to be totally a, wa a wash for you, but if you remember Art Linkletter and the kids, it just, just the mention of it brings a smile on my face. But in one of the stories was a teacher was giving a, a lesson uh, to the students on, a circulation, on circulation of the blood through the body. And trying to make the, the matter clear, she said, now, class, if, if, if I stood on my head, the blood, you know, as you know, it would all run down into it, and I, I would turn really red in the face. You understand that? Yes, yes, the class said. Then why is it that while I'm standing upright in the ordinary position, the blood doesn't run into my feet? And one little fellow shouted out, because your feet ain't empty. <laughs> Another case, yeah, this is how we've changed in our society. When they did that with the kids, I mean, you just you just laugh until uncontrollably. Now people don't even find that funny. Uh, another, and people really won't find this one funny. On another occasion, the children had been photographed for the class picture. How many of you remember class picture time? Oh, yeah. yeah, school pictures, and uh, and and she was uh, the teacher was trying to persuade them to be sure to tell the parents and everything and to buy a copy or maybe two. She said, just think how nice it would be to look at it when you're all grown up. And you say, well, there's Jennifer, she, she's a lawyer. And there's Michael, he's a doctor. And, oh, that's Tommy, he's, he's a businessman downtown. And just then a little voice at the back of the room rang out, and there's the teacher, she's dead. <laughs> I mean, kids are really something, aren't they? Do you have children? How many of you have children? Grandchildren, great-grandchildren. How many of you ever were a child? Okay, I wondered about that. All right. So here's what I also wonder. I wonder if you have ever wondered what Jesus was like as a child. And I also wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on this topic. I never have. Have you ever thought of it? What was he like as a child? We're going to see some interesting things. Now, some researchers have referred to the childhood of Jesus as the hidden years or the years of silence. You can call it whatever. That's why I titled this, uh, this message today, Grounded. Now, there are many uses of the word grounded. Let's just look at that for a moment so I can explain why that title. Um, like... Grounded can mean different things. It can mean you're well-balanced or you're very sensible. Like a student can be grounded 
well-grounded in a certain subject, or a person can be grounded in a theory or a practice, we'll say. And uh, it also could refer to the ability to just stay calm. Yeah, everything was falling down around her, but she was just grounded. She would just stay as calm as she could be. And then I would ask, what are a few examples of things which can be grounded? Well, a ship can get into trouble of the sea and run aground, right? Electricity, as far as I know, should always be grounded. A pilot or an aircraft itself can be grounded, and that could be for various reasons. Uh, a baseball batter may have just grounded out, or a football quarterback could be penalized for intentionally grounding the ball. And, and, of course, last but by no means least, what can be grounded? And some of you parents are already answering it. Yes. A teenager. Yes. 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 After the events of his birth, we seems like we're all very aware of that, or we seem to know a lot about it or think that we do. We're told hardly anything about the life of Jesus before he actually appears on the scene and begins his earthly ministry. Hardly a thing. But this lack of information raises some questions, and before the questions, I'd just say with that little bit of information that the Bible gives us about Jesus' childhood and, and his young adulthood, let's say his adolescence, we see that Jesus was a good example for us in respecting his parents, obeying his father, and working towards spiritual growth. Now, what are some of the questions that come up as a uh, uh, because of this lack of information? Well, I would say, number one, what was Jesus like as a child? What kind of child was he? I would ask, did he travel with his parents to different places other than to Egypt? How old was he when his family returned to take up residence in the, in the city or town of Nazareth? How old was he at that time? Did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? In essence, he was God in the flesh. Did he know that as a youth? Was he aware of that? Did he comprehend that? Did he have miraculous powers? I mean, did Jesus do miracles as a child? So there are so many questions that the Bible does not, just does not answer. And we have to remember the Bible wasn't written to satisfy our curiosity, and it wasn't written uh, to answer all our questions. Hello? The Bible was written to tell us what we need to know to believe in and to obey God. And then you're coming back at me, and I don't blame you, and I would ask it too, I guess. So why is the Bible so silent about the childhood of Jesus? I mean, it could be the Gospel writers wanted our eyes to be so singularly focused on the ministry and teaching of Jesus that he began around the age of 30. I don't know. Incidentally, it's interesting that in the Jewish culture of the time, a man had to be 30 years old before he could be considered a wise, well-learned, mature rabbi worth of respect. Hmm. Another possible reason for the lack of information about Jesus' early life was that if we were told more details about him, like how did he dress, 
what was his favorite color, what, did, what that, were his favorite activities as a child, what did he like to eat, what were his favorite, uh, favorite foods, then maybe we would try, because I couldn't even imagine all the religions that would have started out of those things, that we would try to imitate him in things that are really unimportant. And, and that would take our attention away from the most important things about Jesus. And we're going to get to those. And as far as we can tell, and, and, I, and I hesitate to use this word, but I, I, I can't find a, another one. As far as we know, Jesus' childhood was very normal. <laughs> this is another reason that the Gospel writers had no reason to write about his childhood or his adolescence. Throughout history, though, people have been guessing. Boy, they've been trying to answer this question, I'll tell you. And they've been wondering if Jesus performed miracles as a child. And so just wondering that caused people to speculate. And, um, the, you know, the, the, people have just tried over and over and over to answer this question to no avail. But the first biblically recorded miracle of Jesus is found in John chapter 2. So it's not hidden, it's out there for us to see when he turned the water into wine at the marriage festival in Cana. But in the second century, it didn't take long, there were some books written which contained fables about Jesus performing miracles when he was a boy. And I can give you a list of the ones that were written, but it wasn't worth repeating. They were fables, they were fantasies, they were fictions. If Jesus really did these things as a child, then I tell you this, his fame would have spread long before the miracle of Cana. People at the marriage of Cana would have known all about him on that day, but they didn't. And we'll prove that. Even Nathaniel from the nearby town had not heard of Jesus before, had never even heard of him. And he exclaims, can, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? John 146. Now think about it. Had Jesus been doing miracles, Nathaniel would have said, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Oh yeah! Oh yes, oh yes, sure! The kid, the kid who does those miracles comes from there. He didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. The citizens of Nazareth who were Jesus' relatives friends, neighbors, and knew that family could hardly believe that it was their very own Jesus who was reportedly performing many miracles as an adult. They said, and now I'll have you turn to Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to start to read at verse 55, if I might. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus is only the carpenter's son, and his... Uh, and, and his mother's name is Mary. And aren't his brothers James and John and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us too? So where does this man get all these things? And we see that in verse 57, and the people refuse to accept Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So he learned rejection, public rejection, immediately upon coming on the scene. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own town, or in his own neighborhood, or in his own home. 
we learn that in Nazareth, he did not do many miracles there. Verse 58 tells us, because of their lack of faith. Yeah, he didn't do the miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now that may not speak to you this morning, but that speaks to me big time. He may not have done many miracles there because of their lack of faith. This shows that Jesus had a somewhat normal life prior to starting that public ministry. And prior to that ministry, he was probably well-liked in the community and in, and in his family and by his, by his siblings and so on. Now, when you stop right there, just take it in for a moment. Jesus must have been an exceptional boy and young man, for after all, he was sinless. He was sinless. I know what you're thinking, just like my kids. When I was in education, I used to say, there's only one perfect kid in the world, and every parent has it. But stop. Stop for just a moment and think of that. He must have been exceptional as a boy and a young man, but he was sinless. I think he was well-liked. Nevertheless, living with a sinless person must have had its challenges for his family. Imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus as your brother. Hmm. I'm sure his siblings often heard these words. <coughs> Why can't you just be more like Jesus? You don't think they ever heard that? I do. Jesus was perfect, but the parents and siblings weren't, so it must have caused some conflict along the way. Imagine Joseph having a bad day, doing whatever he was doing, and blaming his own mistakes on Jesus. Don't know if it happened. Imagine Mary, maybe had a bad day, and she's yelling at Jesus because maybe his brother or a sister lied to get him into trouble. And by the way, that wouldn't be the last time Jesus was punished for something that someone else did and something that someone lied about. So, like I said, Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. But the situation in which he was living was not. It was far from perfect and far from sinless. So now let's turn our attention to another famous chapter of the Bible. Let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. It's a very good Christmas chapter, but I'm not going to read the Christmas portion. I'm going to the last quarter of that chapter. I'm going to begin to read down in verse 41. By the way, this is, if you want to mark it or if you're a note taker, is the only incident recorded in the Bible from Jesus' childhood. There is none other. <coughs> Friends, since this is the only incident in the biblical record of the growing up years of Jesus, I've got to tell you, it must be important. It must be. So how does Luke begin? Dr. Luke begins the story with these words, verses 41 and 2. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast or the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. 
are as they always did. All right. We learn from these verses that Joseph and Mary were very consistent, very faithful in their obedience to God and His commands and in keeping every part of the law that, that was possible to keep. And every year they would travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which is the most important of the three annual feasts. We're told that Jesus was 12 years old, and again this year, he went with them. Now Jesus, I want you to notice, it's, you say, well, why would the Bible record that he was 12 years old, or not just a young boy or a young man? <clears throat> because, because at that age that he was, was an important transition point in the life of all Jewish children when they're in their 12th year, heading into the 13th. The bar uh, mitzvah, or the bat mitzvah, took place the Saturday before a child's 13th birthday, and it represents the transition between childhood and adulthood. So, as Jesus uh, attended the Passover in his 12th year, uh, he no doubt was preparing for his responsibilities as an adult. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, they didn't go from child to teen to adult. They went from child <coughs> to adult. He's preparing to take responsibility for his own obedience to the law. He's coming out from under his parents' faith. He's ready now to express a faith of his own. And it's interesting. So I pick it up in verse 43 of Luke 2. When the feast days were over, they went home. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Huh. And we'll keep reading on to verse 45. Joseph and Mary traveled the whole day. They, they, thought, <laughs> they thought Jesus was with them. That never happened to you in the group. And then they began to look for him among the family and friends. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But they didn't find him. So they went back to Jerusalem. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Just think all the gas they were they were wasting. <laughs> At today's price, wow, that'd be inflated even more. To look for the for him there. I want you to try to picture it. It's so easy to read these verses and you know, oh, oh, oh. so easy to hear a babbling preacher and say, oh, get over it. Try to picture the typical traveling practice of the time, okay? People were not driving used cars or new cars. Oh, or, or any cars. You still with me? Okay, you three listen now. They didn't have reservations on a plane. They didn't have a ticket for a train. And they didn't have to go through ticketing and inspection requirements and... And, and stuff, you know, stick up your nose and all that stuff. They didn't have to go through that to board their plane or their train. Obviously, they would have noticed Jesus was missing if they were in their own car, maybe. I was actually in a car with a family one time who got an hour away from a restaurant and realized one of their kids wasn't in the car. That really happened. So I just said, maybe if they were in their own car, or if they're boarding an airplane or a train, pretty much they'd know that the kid wasn't there. Huh? So picture this now. I'm not talking a few dozen, even hundreds. I'm talking thousands 
of people leaving the city of Jerusalem. You've seen pictures of Jerusalem, and thousands and thousands of people would really, really clutter that place up. And they're all leaving basically at the same time, and, and after the feast, they're heading home, and they're leaving in community, and they're leaving in family groups, and they're kind of staying together. That's how they traveled. Some were on carts, some were on donkeys, most of them were on foot. And as the families traveled together in those groups, the kids would be with different members of the group and at different parts of the convoy. And when the group stopped for the night, the parents would check on the kids. Smart idea. When Joseph and Mary did so that night, they discovered one Jesus was missing. They probably looked at each other and said, I, I, I thought Jesus was with you. And that one said, I thought he was with you. Can you hear that back and forth? I can. No, no, you've never done that as a married couple. Of course not. What am I thinking? I've known families where this happened to one or more of their kids many times during childhood, where one parent thought she was with the other, he or she was with the other, and as a result, they both were thinking the same thing and they were both wrong, and the kid was left at the church or at the grocery store or at the restaurant or at the gas station. I know you're laughing. But I don't even know if it's ever happened to you. But it does happen. It does happen, believe me. And this has to be, I would guess, I mean, I've heard of people who just in one aisle of a store have started missing their kid. They nearly went frantic. And you have good reason in this crazy day that we live in to do that. But i got to say this, it must be a parent's worst nightmare, right? Where is he? I don't know. I thought he was with you. I don't know. I thought he was with those kids. I thought he was with that family. I thought I saw him a little while ago. Well, I thought he was with you. With those thousands of people and they're making this long trek and they're well, well away now from the city. Uh, it had to be a terrifying thing. But the 12-year-old Jesus was missing and his parents were concerned and they should be. So the Bible says they began looking for him among their friends and relatives, and then they retraced their steps to Jerusalem. And you would look among the friends and relatives, because like I said, the kids would group together and do things or just entertain each other as they walked along. And that would be very natural, very normal. And so they would check with that group of friends and neighbors that were the closest to them. But when that, that proved to no avail, then they retraced their steps to Jerusalem. So Luke picks it up in verse 46, if we can, of 46 to 50. Let's read. So after three days, they found him. Why, <laughs> you were panicking on day one. What would you be on day three? Yeah. Yeah, after three days, they found him. They found him. Jesus was sitting in the temple with the religious leaders or the religious teachers and he was listening to them and he was asking them questions and I honestly believe he was even answering some questions. Wow. Wow. Everyone who heard him, all the people, they were amazed at his understanding, a 12-year-old boy, and his wise answers. When his parents saw him, they were amazed. And one of the other versions says they were astonished. Wow. The mother said to him, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say, 
I'm just going to say something. I mean this in total love, a hundred times love, but typical mother fashion. Son, why did you do this to us? Notice this. Notice. Notice the letters here. Notice the words on the screen. Your father, a small f, father, and I were very worried about you. We've been looking for you. He answered. Phenomenal answer. Why did you have to look for me? You should have known. There you go. You should have known that I must be where my father's father, capital F, work is. But they didn't understand the meaning of what he said. Joseph and Mary found Jesus where they least expected him, in the temple among the religious teachers. I mean, of course, that's where 12-year-old boys would be hanging out, right? No, of course not. No, they'd probably expect to find him at the candy store if there was one, or playing a game of marbles with the other boys. I don't know, but he wouldn't be at the temple. Everyone was amazed at the depth of his questions and his answers. That includes even his parents. <coughs> Once they got over the amazement, they were just plain irritated. And Mary's the spokesperson for the two of them, and she should have been. And says, son, why do you treat us like this? Your father and I have been absolutely, we've been anxiously searching for you. I mean, we've been beside ourselves, basically. And Jesus brought an astonished but respectful reply. Why were you searching for me? Why did you spend time looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Didn't you know I had to be where my father's work is? <coughs> mm. Jesus was essentially saying, Mother, based on your own experience and the confirmations given to you throughout life, you have to know who I am and why you of all people have to know who I am and why I came to this earth. If nobody else knew, you want to know. That's, he didn't say those words, but I think he was implying that and I think that arrested Mary. I think it got her attention and I think that things started to change right there. Right there, Jesus reminded his parents that he was first and foremost the Son of God and he must carry out his Father's, capital F, business. Yep. I don't think that there was even a hint of disrespect or disobedience in his, in his voice or in his heart or in his mind toward his mother, and I'm going to call him his stepfather. <clears throat> his decision to stay behind was based on his faith and his eternal purpose. And all this was completely logical to Jesus. But Luke tells us 
that it all went over Mary and Joseph's head. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't grasp at all what he was saying. They didn't understand what he meant when he said, I have to be about my father's business. Joseph, you have been... Here's what he's saying, I believe. I think he's saying without saying it to Joseph. Joseph, you have been my surrogate father all this time, but now I must do the work of my heavenly father for which purpose I've been sent. Hmm. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. As I move along in the final two verses of the chapter, Luke gives us all the information we really need to know about Jesus' childhood and his young adult life. Reading verses 51 and 52 to close out the chapter. Then he went down. Jesus went with them to Nazareth. This is very important next line. And he obeyed them his mother was still thinking about all that had happened. She's still trying to process this. She's having a hard time. And Jesus continued to learn more and more and to grow physically. People liked him and to please God. And, and the way it's uh, worded in another uh, translation, Jesus grew in wisdom, probably in your uh, translation, in stature, in favor with God and man. That means he grew intellectually. He grew uh, physically in stature. He grew spiritually and he grew socially. He grew, he grew in wisdom, intellectual. He grew in stature, physical. He grew in favor with God, spiritual. And in favor with man, social. In verse 41, uh, excuse me, uh, 51 and 52, Luke kind of brings all 18 years, those 18 years of Jesus' life together for us. Mary added this experience to the list of things. She had a lot of things in her heart, heart and mind that she had to be thinking of and pondering and, and so on, but uh, this was just another one. And she had to ponder about this wonderful son of hers and it must have caused her great joy, even though just moments before, or hours before, or days before, she was not feeling the joy. Jesus went home with them. And the Bible said, it's interesting, this is pointed out by Luke, and he was obedient. He went home with them, and he obeyed. In the process, he grew and he matured in a perfect and well-rounded way, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. Now these verses confirm what I said earlier, a rather normal childhood and young adulthood of Jesus. Jesus didn't draw attention to himself while he grew and developed, and he waited the ministry and the sacrifice that lay ahead of him. Well, we ask, what can we learn from those silent years? Well, we can learn, first of all, if your teenager ever gets grounded and is grumbling about it, remind them that Jesus was grounded for 18 years. We saw him in action one time when he was 12. We never heard from him again until he was 30. And by the way, ground it without a TV, ground it without an iPhone, without an Xbox, without a child advocate, without electronic gadgets, without ding-dongs, and without whoopie pies. <laughs> you can mark it down if you want. Put it in your notes. That's grounded. That's grounded. It's a long time. 
But there are a few interesting things here, and I call them the first and last that come from the, uh, this whole episode and this whole part of the chapter. And it'd be great for you to take notes on this. Here's one thing. It's the first and last, meaning it's the beginning and end. It's the only, 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 only biblically recorded incident from Jesus' youth. It's the first time we heard from him, and it's the last time. Okay? Until the ministry, his ministry takes hold. Also in this account are the very first words of Jesus that are reported in Scripture. They're not the first words, but the, word, the first words that we hear. We marvel at the fact God became human, but not just human. He became a child. Then he became a teenager who submitted himself to earthly parents. It, it may have been hard for you or me to, to kind of uh, to submit ourselves to our parents because we thought we knew more or better than our parents, but we, and then maybe we went away. Like, you know, like the writer said, I went away to college for four years when I came home, or I went in the army and came home after four years. And I was amazed how much my father had learned. Mm. 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 But maybe we thought we knew better or we were better. But think about Jesus. He never had those thoughts. He did know more. He did know better than his earthly parents, but he was obedient to them. He was subservient to them. He was disciplined enough in his mind to always obey them. That's a wonderful example for all of us. Children, teens, adults, all of us. How have you done? How are you doing? How are you doing? and showing respect for your parents. Okay, there's a second thing we see here, and that's the beautiful example of obedience and submission to God. For Jesus, that meant he should submit himself to Mary and Joseph, for that was God's will. But when their earthly authority conflicted with God's heavenly authority, then Jesus had to follow the absolute sovereign authority of God Almighty. I must be in my Father's house. I must be where my Father's work is. I must be about my father's business. That's the sovereign authority of God. And most of the time, we can submit to God's authority and to earthly authority without a, without a conflict, whether it's our parents, the teachers, the government, whoever it is, without being any real problem. But when following earthly authority causes us to disobey God, listen to this, Christian, then our allegiance is to God. It supersedes our allegiance to people. How are you doing in holding and leading a life of obedience and submission to God? How are you doing? And also, we have that beautiful example, this is the third thing we learned, of a commitment to spiritual growth. When I don't pretend to fully grasp how or why the Lord grew, I, I, I don't have the record of that, so I can't really tell you I never saw a growth chart, I don't know. But it seems evident to me that staying behind at the temple was just one example of Jesus' determination to grow and to be obedient to his Heavenly Father. Or maybe, maybe it was just to set the standard for you and for me. We don't know all that Jesus did to contribute to his growth during the quiet years, but Luke says he grew in wisdom intellectually. And he grew in stature physically. And he grew in favor with God spiritually. And he grew in favor with man socially. We know that he grew in all those areas of life. And listen to this. If growing was so important to Jesus, shouldn't it be important to us? You say, well, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian 43 years. 
I, I didn't ask you how long you've been a Christian. I'm saying, what about growing? What about learning? What about moving on? Everything that's alive grows. Are you growing? Are you alive? We don't know all that Jesus did to contribute to his growth during those years, but Luke tells us that he did grow. And I think if it's important to him, it's important to us. Now, what are some of the means that God has provided for our growth? Well, the scriptures. Are you in the scripture? There shouldn't be anything that keeps you from them. And then there's edification and instruction provided by others in the body of Christ. Are you getting that? Are you being fed that? Are you learning? Are you growing? And then there's sharing the good news with others. <coughs> good enough to have, good enough to share. And then there's obedience to what we know to be the will of God. That's key to your further growth. So let me ask, will we make a commitment to let nothing keep us from these vital means of spiritual growth? I hope and pray. Indeed we will. Ultimately, however, this passage is not given to teach us how to be better parents or better Christians, but to help us put our faith in Jesus. To give us perspective and understanding of His life. I want to end this, uh, this installment and this part of Luke 2. The part of Luke 2 that you've never probably bothered to read or never taken in. And I've never heard a message on it. Let me end this by going to Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to read just two verses of Scripture there with you. Starting in verse 8. Son though he was, or, another translation, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, and made, once made perfect. I want you, I want you to just take that in. Once made perfect. Wow. And I believe that that means uniquely equipped and prepared as the Savior and all the time retaining his integrity amid opposition. And he had it all of his adult life. Which wasn't very long. But he had opposition from the start. In other words, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. He is the only way to God and the only way to heaven. So if you ever had an idea of how to get to heaven but it, it doesn't square with what I just said, uh, you need to stop in your tracks today. Take, take, take stock and come to Jesus. He's the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Not through a church, not through a religion, not through being nice to people. You ought to do those things. My questions are very simple. Will you put your faith in Him? That's the question. And will you live a life of obedience to his teaching? Those seem like simple questions. Those seem like questions 
that can be answered pretty simply. I'm just asking you to answer yes. Will you trust in Him if He's the only way to God and to heaven? And will you live a life of obedience and submission to His teaching? Yes. God bless you as you do. Tell somebody before you leave this building. Come and see me. Seek me out. Put some information on the Connect card and leave it with us. We'll be glad to follow up with you. <coughs> Make your way over to the prayer space and prayer partners will help you there and pray with you. We don't want to leave you hanging. We don't want to leave you alone. We want you to know and to put into action these truths from the Word of God. Now let's pray. Once again, Heavenly Father, we, we've been obedient to Your Word. We've opened Your Word so that we might learn and that we might grow. And we would ask right now that You would speak to hearts. Those that are here without You, those that are here wondering, they're doubting, they don't really know, or they know they've never had that one time face-to-face -face confrontation with Jesus, and they've never really taken the first step to God through faith in Him. God, I pray today would be their day. I pray today would be the day that they never, ever can look back on without just rejoicing, just shouting, just so happy. This is the day they entered into relationship with Jesus and into assurance of a heavenly home. We pray for every Christian in this room, everyone who needs to step out, everyone who needs to put their faith in Jesus and to walk with Him. Lord, Your Holy Spirit will guide them and move them along in that faith journey. Thank You for all that we've read, all that we've heard. Thank You that it's Your Word, not man's Word. Thank You for all who have part now in this service, and thank you for the fact that we can go from your word right now into a continued spirit of worship and praise and thanksgiving with our hearts, our minds, our voices, our souls. For you, God, in Jesus' name, amen.